scriptures. Let me invite you to open up God's word with me this morning to the Old Testament book of of Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah chapter 3 today, and as we turn there, the elementary kids that want to participate in our children's worship time are welcome at this time to gather out in the foyer for the beginning of a time of learning together. But as we think about what it means to, to glorify God, as we think about giving our lives to that purpose, to that end, the end of exalting the Lord God Almighty, we, we must know Him, to know what it means to glorify Him, to know what it means to worship Him and to give our lives, to spend our lives for His glory. And so we come to know Him as He has made Himself known through His Word. And so let's look at His Word together today. If you're visiting with us today or haven't been with us in a couple weeks, we've begun a new series, a series from the book of Nehemiah, a series uh, titled Zealous for God's Glory. And so we're we're journeying through this this book, this short Old Testament book. It's found if you're using a pew Bible somewhere, I think, uh, in the neighborhood of about 385, 390. Uh, but Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, you see those books, you know you're in the right neighborhood. But we're in Nehemiah chapter 3 today, and the context of the story is that Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer of the king of Persia, the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, has approached the king about leaving that role for a temporary assignment in Jerusalem because Jerusalem's walls uh, have uh, been torn down. Uh, The gates of the city have been burned with fire. All of this is a result of attacks from enemies over many years, decades, even centuries. Uh, Israelites have been displaced. They've gone into exile. Many of them have returned to rebuild the temple, but the the city itself still, for the most part, lies uh, in, in ruins. And so burdened with this task, uh, broken over the condition of the city and <clears throat> the disgrace of God's people, uh, Nehemiah receives permission to go. And so he has received that permission from the king. Uh, he has asked for the necessary supplies and for safe travels. And he has arrived in Jerusalem and he has gone about the city by night surveying the condition of the walls and uh, he has approached the people, telling them what God has done, and the people have responded and said, okay, let's do this, let's let's get to work, let's begin this good work. And we pick up the story in chapter 3. And so as you find your place there, let me invite you to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Considering the whole chapter today, but I want to read the beginning and the end, verses 1 through 5, and then 28 through 32. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachur, son of Imri, built next to them. Verse 3, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassani. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, rebuilt the next section next to him. Meshulam, son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Now skipping down to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs. 
each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalath, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Would you turn to the Lord with me in prayer? And, O oh, Father, we pause together this morning asking for your guidance. Father, asking for your help. Inviting your spirit to speak to us, to instruct us, to correct us, to shape us. So, Lord, that we might indeed give ourselves for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, given that list of of names, excuse me, given that list of names, you can see perhaps why we're not reading the whole chapter uh, this morning. No, in all seriousness, very much of the same throughout this chapter. We're reading about Israel's division of labor under Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem. It's a construction project completed by volunteer labor with some 40 different work crews tackling this particular job. As we noted earlier, we've, we've got a team of 25 volunteers that left yesterday uh, to serve alongside sister churches on a church construction project in Ohio. Builders for Christ, that's what they're called. And I want to propose to you today that even though they may not have known it, the Jerusalem construction crew of 445 B.C. was also building for Christ, preparing the way preparing the way for a people to receive their long-awaited King and Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. this This is an incredible story of teamwork, of people coming together to serve a common cause, and that cause is ultimately the exaltation of their God. No matter we're not called to build city walls. That's not our task. That's not our particular project at at hand. But we are called to build up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ to glorify the God who reigns and the God who saves by serving Him and serving Him together. We glorify God when we serve Him together. Church, we glorify God when we serve Him Together, that's what these folks are are doing in this story. We just heard a few minutes ago about Vacation Bible School and what an incredible week it was. It was a good week, a, a microcosm, I think, of what God intends in the body of of Jesus Christ, with dozens of folks, dozens of servants, of volunteers serving by decorating and greeting and cooking and cleaning and teaching and singing and directing and playing and praying, copying. The list goes on and on. Many folks ready to serve, and I believe God was glorified through the service. We glorify God when we serve God together. 
But we don't all serve him in the same way. I, we know this. Doing the same thing. We're not, we're not all called to lead. Everyone is not called to lead. For if they were, not much would ever get done. Everyone's not called to be Mr. David. Everyone's not called to be Miss Kelly or Mr. Austin. If we had all leaders, much would go un, undone. But praise God, he calls some to lead. Calls some to, to lead the collective ministry efforts among his people. God calls leaders to organize, motivate, and model faithfulness. It's one of the truths I think we see in this story again and again throughout Nehemiah that God calls leaders to organize, to motivate, and to model faithfulness. Like We're not told everything Nehemiah did, but we're told enough to know this man knew how to organize. Before ever approaching the king, he had a supply list in hand and a timetable in, in mind. Before sharing his plans upon arrival in Jerusalem with the people that were living there, before ever sharing what he believes that God is leading him to do, uh, he goes on uh, a secret reconnaissance mission to investigate the need. See, in Nehemiah chapter 3, it's clear that this man has considered both the number of folks needed for the project and the particular places that they will serve. Particular places that each work crew would would serve. This was no small wall. Archaeologists have uncovered that this wall was somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight feet thick, surrounding the city, perhaps about a mile and a half long, with several broken down and burned gates throughout. Nehemiah organizes his crew, it seems, by by common interests. Is the priests serving together? Goldsmiths? Perfume makers, various merchants coming together to work on various portions of the wall. Families working together and and also organizes them by geography. Many of them, it appears, it's clear, are working close to home. Recording the 40 work crews in counterclockwise fashion. That's how they're mentioned here. Begins the northern part of the city, works his way around in a counterclockwise direction. We read that again and again. We read next to him. Do you hear that phrase? Next to him. Next to him. This guy. These folks. Sons of these folks. Next to him. This group. Clearly, this man's organized. He's able to motivate people to rally behind his vision, which is a vision for the return of God's glory to the city of, of Jerusalem. He's a leader. But he's not the only Leader here, verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. It says they dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. The priests, even the high priest, didn't just sit around and direct others to do the work, but they, the text says, went to work, verse 1. They're modeling faithfulness to the Lord. And likewise, God calls leaders in our day, He calls leaders in the church of, of God to model faithfulness. Right, listen to Peter's message to the elders of the church. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Be shepherds of God's flock. It's under your care. 
watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Friends, let's praise God for humble leaders. Let's praise God for humble leaders, be they Moses and Joshua, Nehemiah, Peter, and Paul, or the pastors and teachers God's used to shape each of us. God calls leaders to organize, motivate, and model faithfulness, and God makes servants who gladly use their gifts for His glory. God makes servants who gladly use their gifts for His glory. A few dozen names, some rather difficult names for us, are mentioned here. But many, many more go unnamed. Right? Groups of folks are mentioned together, clumped together. Fellow priests, uh, the men of Jericho, the sons of Hassanai, the men of Tekoa, the residents of Zenoa, the daughters of Shalom, men and women using their God-given time and resources and energy to build up Jerusalem's wall. Now, we may not live in Jerusalem. We, we don't. We may not live in God's old city, the place that he chose to dwell among his people in that particular age. But we live in the new and fulfilled form of God's Old Testament community. We live as God's redeemed people who comprise Christ's church. We are the church. The community of God saved who serve and worship the king of all kings and were called and privileged to do so together with one another. We glorify God when we serve him together. How do we serve him? How do we organize ourselves so that we display the glory and the grace of God as we build up the body of Christ, we do so by using our God-given gifts in the company of God's people for the sake of God's name. So how has God gifted you? He has, believer, how has he, how has he gifted you? So God makes servants who gladly use their gifts for his glory. And ultimately, this is God's work. He does this in the hearts of his people. God's handprints are are all over this story. God's providential hand guiding Nehemiah, stirring the hearts of his friends to join him in prayer, granting him favor in the presence of the king, convincing the community of Israelites from the high priest to the unnamed residents of surrounding villages to join the mission of God despite opposition by using their gifts for his glory. There's no other explanation for this. There's no other suitable, acceptable explanation for this other than the Spirit of God equipping and stirring the people of God to serve God together. We glorify God when we serve him together. And in our day, as believers in Jesus living Post the coming and the living and the dying and the rising of Jesus, our Savior, as followers of Christ who comprise the church of Christ, we glorify God when we use our God-given gifts for the good of his church. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, for, the, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith, God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. According to the grace given to us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So when Paul tells us to think of ourselves with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has given us, do well to know that faith is a gift. Of course, with the faith God has given us, given by God. We, we don't come to faith entirely on our own apart from the Spirit's work in us. Nor do we become servants of God on our own apart from the Spirit's transformation of us. But somewhere before we give our hearts in service to Christ, we're sinners in need of a Savior. We're sinners in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sinners in need of Jesus to save us. So, fellow sinner, have you seen your need for the Savior, the promised King and the perfect Savior, Jesus the Christ? Friend, give yourself to Christ. Give yourself to Christ. If you're going to spend your life to exalt God, if you're going to spend your life for the glory of God, you need to know God. And we come to know Him personally, fully, in the person of Jesus Christ, give yourself to Christ. Lay your heart before Him. See your need for Him. And receive the gift of His life for you. See, to have sober judgment is to have a right view of self, not an inflated view of you. Know anybody with an inflated view of self? Not an inflated view of you, nor a deflated view of you. Anybody know someone with a deflated view of self? To have a sober judgment is to have a right view of self, not an inflated view or a deflated view, but a biblical view. One that sees the depth of your Creator's love for you. So much so. So much so that He planned and purposed and accomplished a permanent solution to your sin problem by sending His very Son, the only Son of God, to pay for it and then granting you the necessary faith to believe it. Give yourself to Christ and then gladly serve the body of Christ. Let's be a people who gladly serve the body of Christ. In Nehemiah's day, God's Spirit prompted people to build and to build for God's glory. Marking off the the place of God's presence as a home for God's praise. But once the place of God's presence became the place of God's sacrifice, during the time of God's Passover festival, the people of God became those with faith in the person of Christ, thereby becoming the body of Christ. And those who are part of the body, those who are part of the body of 
Christ are gifted for the good and the growth of the body. We see this in a text like Romans 12. We see it in Ephesians chapter 4. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Called to serve the Lord together by building up the body as a witness to the power and the grace of Christ in the lives of one another, but also as a witness to the world. In other words, there's a bond among believers. There's a bond in the community of faith, a sense of community in the church, not easily broken, shouldn't be. So strong that like-minded followers of Jesus gladly sacrifice for the welfare of brothers and sisters in Christ and for the sake of the name of Christ, even in places they've not been and among people they don't know. Because they're part of the same family. So I think about that, I think of a story, a conversation that took place on the couch in our home this week between a four-year-old and his 11-year-old big sister. And so little Eli is snuggling up to his older sister and uh, he looks at her and trying to discern what kind of relationship they have. He says, we're brothers. She looks at him and says, no, we're not. He says, huh, we're sisters. No, we're not. Trying to make it right, he says, we're, we're brothers, sisters. Yes, that's more like it. Part of the same family, brothers and sisters. In the same grouping, part of the same people. And so it is in the body of Christ. So it is among those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read that Paul's been collecting an offering for brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. He's been collecting an offering as he travels from place to place for suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And the Macedonian believers have gone above and beyond what they were able out of love for Christ and love for his people. He says, he says, for I testify that they, the Macedonian believers, gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for what? For the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Likewise, church, may we give ourselves first of all to the Lord. May we give ourselves to Christ. May we put our faith in Him, offering our lives to Him. May we give ourselves first of all to the Lord, and then may we give ourselves to the Lord's people, building up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ by offering our time and our talents and our treasures for the health of the church. And in a local church like ours, we need, we need greeters who will be friendly faces at the door, who speak kind words as folks come in. Oh, we need ushers who will, uh, who, who will help with uh, the, the offerings on Sunday. We, we need child care workers who will work with kids of all ages. We need tech folks and musicians and prayer warriors and mission trip goers. And if you're not serving in one of these or another capacity, you're missing out. And so are we. Because we were made for each other. We belong to each other. Meant to grow together. We glorify God when we serve Him together. And part of our serving the King is living and giving and going for the glory of Jesus Christ. Certainly in Meadowbrook. Certainly in Meadowbrook. But not just in Meadowbrook, Alabama, but among the nations of the world. Give and go for the glory of Christ. 
give and go for the glory of Christ. You see, the Israelites built a wall for the glory of God. Ultimately, so that the Lamb of God would enter the sheep gate, the one that's mentioned at the beginning and end of this text, so that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would enter the sheep gate of Jerusalem some half a millennium later so that the nations of the world could be reconciled to the Most High God forever and ever and ever. So that so that they could be recipients of God's saving grace. You see, the Macedonians gave for the glory of Christ. Paul went for the glory of Christ. And as fellow recipients of God's saving grace, we too are invited to give and to go as Christ. So Christ would be exalted in our own hearts, in our neighborhoods, and among the nations. And honestly, church, this is one of the most beautiful things of our convention. The Southern Baptist Convention. We, we've talked about some challenging things. They've come to light in our own convention, our own denomination of churches. But this is one of those beautiful things of our convention. Shared giving from local Baptist churches for ministry and missions across the state, the nation, and among the nations through our cooperative program. And many of you know this, but... of all that we receive right here through our church offerings goes to support cooperative ministry and mission efforts beyond the local church. And we do so, I hope, not because we have something to prove or not because we have a position to attain, but because of something we've received, someone we've received. Someone whose love we've welcomed in. We've welcomed into our own hearts a kind of undeserved love that when received stirs its recipients to then give it away. It's Christ's love. Do you know it? Do you have it? Have you received it? Are you gladly living and giving and sharing and serving Him? You see, when it comes to these, those who know him can say, for Christ's love compels us. It compels us. It's the love of Christ that stirs us, that compels us, that moves us, because we are convinced, because we are absolutely confident, we are certain that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him, for him who died for them and was raised again. Would you bow with me? And, oh God, we pray that we would be a people who, because we have encountered you and experienced your love, no longer live for self, but live for you. Lead us to live For the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, lead us to live for your glory. Lead us, lead us, Lord, to to use our lives, to spend our lives serving you. And Father, we pray that you would encourage us even now as we commit to do so. Stir us, speak to us, guide us, move us by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to respond in ways with hearts that are open to you in ways that exalt you. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.